0: This is the Scott Bradley Show Podcast.
1: We're talking about the storm, of course. We're going to talk about the storm for just a minute here because I, again, I'm assuming that everyone knows what I'm talking about. There's nobody who doesn't, there's nobody who has actually been asleep all day or something, right, and doesn't know what happened outside. But I got a, I got a couple things that I want to just mention about this storm in general, first of all. There's one thing that puzzles me always when we have a storm, whether it's a Winter storm, whether it's a hurricane, we don't get those met very often. A tornado, thankfully, we don't get those very often. Any kind of massive weather incident. Why is it that we expect and almost demand that our TV weather people be out in said weather? As they're telling us how horrible this is and how everyone should flee for their life we then immediately say, oh yeah, except for the weather people, you're going to go stand on the shoreline of the ocean as the Category 5 hurricane roars in and the waves are 35 feet high. Yeah, we need you standing there in that. Why do we do that? What do we? What is it that we're actually thinking that we are getting by that? I, I mean, CHCH, they were doing their thing, and they had someone this morning standing out in the middle of the snowstorm Looking exceedingly cold, (laughs) exceedingly uncomfortable, and I don't know if it makes us feel better. I'm not sure. I've never quite figured out the the whole concept of the weather person in the eye of the storm kind of thing. To me, if you've got a studio, let your poor person come in the studio. Surely we don't actually, there's cameras out there. Do we need to have the person standing out there? Do we need to actually have the weather person in the weather to make it real? I've never, and, and look, CNN, of all of them, if there's a hurricane anywhere in the Western world, CNN is going to be there and they are going to have their person stuck in the middle of this thing, wearing the poncho, looking like they're being blown away. I'm always impressed, forget everything else, I'm always impressed with the resilience of their technology, of their equipment, because they've got microphones and cameras out there that have got to be getting absolutely drenched and soaked. The fact that they, m- maybe they're all disposable, I don't know, but the fact that they can come back in the studio and c- c- come back to the office and those things are still working because they're expensive. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's that's some high quality material, but to be able to put your, your people out there, I've just never understood that. That, that to me is always a bit of a head scratcher. If you show me the images that to me is, is enough. I don't need to see someone suffering for me to enjoy your weather reporting, but I think that's what it is. I think that's what it is. I think there is a belief that if we can watch someone else suffer through this, that that's way more entertaining. I think, I don't know. I don't have any other good explanation for it. Well, let me tell you something else from today that I, um, that I noticed And then I was a little puzzled by, in fact, I was a lot puzzled by when I pulled out of my driveway this morning, my road had been plowed some hours before in a rudimentary way, plowed enough that the big pile of snow at the end of my driveway that usually happens after I finish shoveling, right? You finish shoveling and then they come along with the plow. It doesn't matter how long you wait. You can wait all day long saying, I'm going to wait till the plow comes. And then as soon as you finish shoveling, the plow comes and blocks you in. But it actually was done earlier today, which which flew against all of Murphy's laws. But the road was really, it, it, it must have happened hours and hours and hours and hours before in the middle of the night because the road was really very difficult to pass through. And as you came down, I'm on the mountain. As you came down the roads downtown, many of them were quite difficult to get through. It was... You know, they're, they're doing what they can. I understand that. But it was difficult. There was a lot of snow coming. So I'm not dumping on the city, pardon the pun. But then my colleague at The Spectator, Scott Gardner, posts a picture on Twitter. The road is not cleared on Herkimer. The sidewalk is not cleared on Herkimer. But the bike lanes on Herkimer are cleaned right down to the asphalt. And then on Facebook, someone comments on Scott's picture and says, yeah, they were on Herkimer. They live on Herkimer. And they sat there and watched as the city person made four passes to clear the bike lanes down to the road. Really? I mean, I I understand that it's different equipment. We can't have the bike lane clearing equipment, the brush thing doing main roads. I get that. I don't know whether it could do sidewalks. If, if If that equipment is capable of doing sidewalks, there is no reason why it should be doing bike lanes in this kind of weather because there are a few people, there are a few people for sure who are riding their bikes when the snow is blowing sideways and it's up to your knees. I understand. There are a few diehards, but there are a lot more people who have to walk. So let's clear the sidewalks before we start worrying about the bike lanes. Let's try and get to the roads. If you, if, if this is the wrong kind of equipment and therefore we can't, you know, it's not like we could put someone on a different equipment. We don't have extra trucks, put the people out on their feet, clearing some parts of the sidewalk in the downtown or putting, so I don't know, do something. It seems to me that somebody, somebody was trying to make a point because remember Herkimer, was the, remember Herkimer is the street that has the really weird parking with the bike lanes and the cars are off the curb and there was a lot of talk. Hey, what's going to happen when it snows? What's going to be the situation when it snows? How's that going to work? Looks to me like somebody was trying to make a point on this one. We're going to make sure that Herkimer is cleared and those bike lanes are so, you could could lick the floor down there and that's going to be so clean. We have a... Surely we have a more pressing need to clear sidewalks and other things than bike lanes when the weather is this bad, don't we? Don't we? And if we have all this equipment that is only capable of clearing bike lanes, should we not have spent some money on some other equipment that could have cleared sidewalks then? I mean, if we've got a bunch of machinery that is only capable of handling bike lanes for the bike lanes that we have in this city, would that not have been money better spent at least splitting it up a little bit, having some equipment that could go and if we can't do sidewalks that we should have been able to do sidewalks? And if they can do sidewalks, why are they doing the bike lanes instead of sidewalks when you consider how many more people would be walking today than riding their bike. I'm not saying don't get to the bike lanes ever. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying don't do any of the bike lanes. I'm not saying that. But if this person was correct, who was watching this from her place on Herkimer, and they were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth four times to clear this off, surely we could have used that time and that equipment better. No. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm way off. Maybe there are thousands of cyclists out there who were looking out the window this morning and seeing this snow and saying, oh, geez, I hope the bike lanes are clear because there's nothing I like better than riding my bike when it's this kind of conditions. I don't think so, though. I don't think so. I don't think too many people were thinking that. Someone else was telling me today that they turned around a corner because the sidewalks weren't cleared and there was a woman pulling her child on a sled in the middle of the street. Now, why they weren't on the sidewalk, I don't know, but she felt it was easier on this part of the street that I guess was lower snow or something. And he says, I almost slid into this person because she was walking in the street. It was stupid to walk in the street. You don't walk in the middle of the street, no matter what the weather conditions are. But surely we need to worry about sidewalks and stuff before bike lanes, no? I don't know. I don't know. But the, I, I looked at this thing and it was, what I know that many of the people who are passionate about bike lanes also can make an awful lot of noise. That has happened in the past. There's lots of people that are able to make a lot of noise. I don't know whether this was someone thinking that we better do this or else we're going to get criticized because Herkimer was a point of issue before. I don't know if this was, I don't know what this was, but surely next time we have a snowstorm like this, there are other priorities before our bike lanes. No. Keep the bike lanes. I understand that. I'm not saying get rid of the bike lanes. Keep the bike lanes. But if we got to be able to let the majority of people get around, that has to be our priority. The majority walking, driving, public transit. What happens by the way? And we said this at the office today, what's going to happen in 10 years if, and when LRT gets constructed and you have a storm like this, how do you clean? Because remember LRT is going to be on elevated center of the road platforms. Are we going to have to have now more special equipment to clean those things off? Or can the LRT just do it by themselves? I don't know. Are we going to have to have now our staff that is instead of cleaning roads that we're going to have to have an LRT crew as well. Or as I say, can you just take this bike lane cleaner thing we have and sweep it off? I have no idea. All I know is that a lot of people today were saying that it was really difficult to get around. I think the city did a great job in some places. I think the city was scrambling as much as they could. It was a lot of snow, but boy, to have bike lanes cleared before roads and sidewalks and stuff seems, seems somehow like we missed the point just a bit. Let me tell, tell me if you agree or disagree. Radley at 900 chml.com love to hear because maybe, maybe you think that in order for us to establish a bicycle culture, that should be our priority. We should be cleaning the bike lanes first, get, get that stuff cleared so that even in the worst weather, everyone is out riding their bikes. Maybe you think that's a great idea and maybe it is. It just doesn't seem like it to me. It seems that we should be directing our focus to the areas that are going to be much more widely used by many more people. Radley at 900 CHML. Love to hear from you. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 7 to 9 on
2: AM
0: 900 CHML.
1: Sometimes you have to do something, if you want to get attention, that may raise a few eyebrows, may cause a few people to take note because of shock, I suppose. Well, that that may be a situation or at least part of the situation that's coming up Thursday. Because Thursday at 1 o'clock on the Hamilton Health Sciences Facebook page, a doctor, a gastroenterologist, will be broadcasting, live streaming, a live colonoscopy. And there are some people, I guarantee you, there are some people listening right now who, as soon as I said that, sort of gritted their teeth and went, ooh, because that's not one of those words that comes up all the time in polite conversation. Maybe it should, but we just don't do it. I don't think that too many of us drop the word colon in any form into a lot of our conversations. Again, maybe we should, but it's just not something. So when you have something like this, it raises people's awareness. It gets people's eyebrows up, their ears perk up, and they go, huh, huh. Well, the doctor who is going to be doing this is Dr. Barry Lum, again, from Hamilton Health Sciences. He joins me now. Dr. Lum, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate it. I think I am like almost everybody else, save for you uh when they hear about this, and I am completely intrigued by the idea and at the same time, I'm a little uncomfortable about the idea Do you think that's normal?
0: Yeah, I think everybody uh gets a little squeamish when they think about tubes going in places where uh they're not necessarily <laughs> meant to be uh routinely found but uh at the end of the day, your point about awareness is is really what this is all about um I, I would like to correct you if I could. Absolutely. Uh, the examination is tomorrow. Oh, okay. Uh, Wednesday, 1 o'clock. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It's on the, on the Hamilton Health Sciences Facebook page. So it's tomorrow.
1: Okay. So let's jump, before we get to all the other stuff, let's jump right into this. Because I think most people are, are right now saying, well, what, am, exa- what exactly will I see if I tune into this? So what, what will people see if they tune in to see this?
0: So what we're going to do is uh, a, a colonoscopy on a, a patient of mine named Dan who has a very strong family history of colon cancer and what they'll see is, is me there and I'm going to show people what the instrument looks like uh, describe a little bit about how it works uh, and then uh, they're going to have the pleasure of seeing the inside of uh, Dan's colon. They're not going to see a lot else uh, about Dan but other than the inside of his colon and we're going to do a Uh, careful examination of uh, the inside of his colon from end to end, and we're looking for polyps, which are a little gross in the bowel, that uh, if left alone have the potential to someday grow up and become malignant. So this is hoping to prevent colon
1: cancer. I I never thought I would ask this question on the radio, but um, describe the appearance of a healthy colon. So people will be quite
0: quite shocked i think um patients take a very uh aggressive clean out uh, the night before and the morning of their exam so the colon will his colon will be as clean and as uh, the inside of your hand you won't see any poop Uh, you might see a little bit of liquid but there's uh, uh it'll be as clean as the inside of your hand Uh, It'll be in high def, like your television, and uh, I guarantee it'll be a lot less gory than some of the medical uh, shows you see on television (laughs) these days.
1: What what color is a healthy colon?
0: It's it's nice and pink, literally just like the inside of your hand, and it's got nice little fine uh, blood vessels that you can see there. It's actually quite intriguing, and these um, kind of uh, valves, we call them, or folds uh, that uh, are part of that, and it kind of looks like you're looking down a, a
1: corrugated tube. And, and you know, some of these things I, I'm kind of embarrassed that I don't know the answer to. I guess that's why you're doing this. Um, how long is this tour? Like, and I don't mean time-wise. I mean, how long is your colon? How far are you going to be exploring?
0: Just under a, a meter uh, from end to end. So starting in his backside and extending all the way around his colon, all the way to where his appendix uh, would be. And, and then there's a valve there that um, connects the small and the large bowel. So it's a just under a meter.
1: You mentioned that you will be looking for polyps. Would the average person, as you as they are watching along with you, and and by the way, will you be having an audio to this explaining what yes, people are saying? Exactly okay, exactly right. Yeah. So as they're watching this, if there was to be a polyp, is the average person going to be ama- instantly aware that that is something different from what is the normal? Would they stand out?
0: Yeah, they do. I mean, it's you have to be vigilant. Uh, the key with, with high-quality colonoscopy is being really careful, looking behind all the nooks and crannies and folds for any of these small polyps. And some polyps are literally no bigger than a pencil eraser, and they look much like a little pencil eraser sticking on the inside of the bowel. Um, those are the ones we want to find before they have a chance to grow up, and, and they'll recognize them when they see it. And if I do happen to find any polyps uh, with Dan, they'll watch me remove them. Oh, you do it right away, right then and there.
1: Is is that a, is it part of the camera? The, the what you would do that with, or do you insert something else?
0: Yeah, so it's you're exactly right. There's a a channel or a tube that goes down the inside of this uh, the instrument, and that allows me uh, or whoever's doing the examination to put down any number of of gizmos, little snares or. Uh, what we call biopsy forceps and so on, that allow us to to do these little minor surgical procedures from the inside.
1: Was Was it difficult to find a patient who was willing to do this, even though you're not going to be identifying him, I assume, by face or by last name, so no one's really going to know, it's still kind of an intimate procedure that is usually between a doctor and his patient in a private office and... I'm wondering if you had to do any convincing to say, hey, listen, we'll we'll put you behind the black screen. It'll be, it'll be like a mafia informant. No one will ever know who you are. Or did he say, no, put me in right away? He actually
0: is fantastic. Um, I know him. He has, as I mentioned to you, he has a very strong family history. So this is not his first uh, rodeo. And um, uh, we called him, uh, and I think it might have taken him 20 seconds to say, really? absolutely, I'm in. Um, he wants uh, to, this to be his his opportunity to do his little part to improve awareness, and uh, obviously we're protecting his uh, his uh, confidentiality and his modesty at the same time. Uh, so he's he's delighted to do it.
1: Has he been? You said it's not his first rodeo, so he's had this before. I, I interpret that to mean so. Has he been in some way pre-screened for this, or is there a chance when you go in? Uh, hopefully not. I'm touching all the wood I can right now, but I mean, hopefully, if, could you, is it possible that you could go in and find something terribly wrong in there?
0: It is very unlikely, um, and I'll tell you why. He, he, because of his family history, he's been having colonoscopies uh, every five years. His mother died of colon cancer when she was 59. So um, colon cancer tends to be very slow growing. Uh, so the likelihood between the exam five years ago and now that he's grown a very large polyp uh, that would be very technically challenging to remove is small. It's, it's never zero because no test is perfect but uh, the likelihood is that it will uh, be normal hopefully for him or if it's not normal that we might find a two or three small polyps that we'll deal with and that's great because that means uh, we've uh, prevented that from uh, getting uh, more advanced later on
1: the fact that he has had this done repeatedly, again, makes him probably as much of an ideal patient for you as possible for the reasons you just said, but not everybody does this. And and I, we just talked about the fact that this is about awareness. For people who don't come in to see you and they suddenly down the road show up and there's a huge problem, what are the stats on, uh, you must have numbers. I mean, how many people in our society end up with a cancer in their colon or some other significant health issue that could have been prevented had they come and seen you at some point?
0: So this is really important, and and, um, you're absolutely right. Colon cancer is a very serious business, and that's the reason that we're in Colon Cancer Awareness Month through Cancer Care Ontario, across Canada, and even in the U.S., as, as it turns out. Somewhere between 1 in 15 and 1 in 20 people will get colon cancer in their life.
1: One in 15? Correct. How come we never hear about it that much? I mean, we do, but not like breast cancer or not like some other cancers that are much more commonly talked about.
0: Yeah, and that's the tragedy of this because the the number is high, but if you find colon cancer early, the survival rate is dramatically better. So an advanced patient who unfortunately uh, has quite progressed disease by the time they get to us, has not the best survival, whereas if we find a colon cancer early, we can improve the survival to 90%. And if we can find polyps uh, and remove them, we can prevent colon cancer. So it's an immense opportunity, and that's the reason that uh, there's these two streams of, of uh, screening opportunities for people, because it's done right and with really good compliance from the population, we can make a huge dent in this.
1: For the people, though, who don't come as a regular part of their health routine, who show up because there's a problem, what is the problem usually that has... What's the, what are the symptoms that they've suddenly said, i got to go see someone?
0: For people with symptoms, um, it's, it's not any one item, but it's a whole series of things that would send up what we would call a red flag and would uh, certainly urge patients to go to their doctor. And that would include uh, new onset of abdominal pain, a change in bowel habit from what they had before, rectal bleeding, uh, weight loss, uh, a new diagnosis of anemia that their doctor might make on routine blood work or when they present with fatigue. Those those are the big ones. And people with those kinds of symptoms absolutely should be seeing their primary care uh, physician and uh, a conversation about whether they need further investigation.
1: How often though, before that, I mean, what's the, we're we're getting into stuff again. I know there's some people right now who, again, are feeling very squeamish about this whole talk and that's fine. But, you know, they, they say for things like prostate exams, you should go every year for your doctor at a certain age. How often should you be going to get a colonoscopy done? So there's no need for routine colonoscopy
0: if you don't have a family history. The recommendation for screening, there's really two groups. One is the patient like Dan that we're going to do tomorrow and he has a family history of what we call a first degree relative, which means a parent or a sibling uh, or even one of their own children um, with colon cancer. And they they should be having colonoscopies every five years, depending on the age of of the relative. But then there's the other group, and this is important, who don't have any risk factors. They're what we call average risk people. And starting at age 50, they should be doing, and I'm going to make your squeamish part a little worse, they should be doing the poop test. Which is? So this is taking a small sample of, of stool and smearing it on a, on a card that's provided, uh, three separate samples over uh, a couple of days, uh, and then that gets submitted uh, and tested. And if there's any evidence of blood in the stool that will get picked up on the card with uh, the technique that they use to develop it. So if you do the screening, which everybody over 50 should be doing every two years, and it's positive, then uh, they need a colonoscopy and they should be getting a colonoscopy within eight weeks or so of getting that positive test. So it's important. There's two two streams here. One is the family history as I mentioned and the other is the average risk person who absolutely for sure should be doing their screen every couple of years.
1: As a doctor who has to deal with the problems when people aren't necessarily getting a colonoscopy and things have moved along, does it drive you a little nuts that people are so squeamish about this though?
0: Yeah, it really does. And and, and so that's why it's so helpful when folks like you have us on to, to have this conversation and we get the opportunity to Promote it because it, it's an immense opportunity to make a big difference. Um, and the last thing I want to do is uh, is be uh, telling somebody they've got colon cancer when, if they'd uh, done the right screening or seen their doctor when they had symptoms, perhaps sooner, uh, we might have had a chance to prevent something.
1: But you know, the, like the funny thing about and when I I don't mean funny, ha ha. I'm sure when you go out on social occasions and someone says, hey, what, you know, what do you? They meet you and they say, what do you do? And you say, I'm a gastroenterologist. I would be hard-pressed to believe too many people follow that up by saying, hey, talk to me about colonoscopies and how those... It's just not something that is people are comfortable talking about. You know, it's getting there, and it's not uncommon
0: that uh, certainly people will tell me their story. Uh, of if their they've problem. had... Sure,
1: if they've been there. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: If they've been there, but... Others
0: will say, you know what, there's no way I would ever <laughs> have somebody do that. And what I'm hoping that seeing the exam tomorrow will do is let them understand that this is uh, almost certainly completely comfortable. Uh, It takes 10 to 12, 14 minutes, uh, and it's an immense opportunity to deal with something before it gets too far advanced.
1: So that's how long you expect this is going to be? Tomorrow is about a 15 to 20 minute thing? Yep. Right after lunch,
0: (laughs) not before lunch. We (laughs) thought we we should get uh, everybody's attention.
1: It is uh, it is something that is again I, I say right off the top. It's something I find totally fascinating to to be able to see this. Uh, even though you know I'm embarrassed a little bit that I have a level of squeamishness about it. I'm not going to deny that, and I'm sure that's probably the case with a lot of people. But I will definitely be tuning in to see this. Um, just before I let you go, I, I, I had to ask you this. I was talking to my wife before I left, and I said, should I ask him this? And she said, sure, why not? How often have people either sung or played for you Bowser and Blue's colorectal surgeon song?
0: You don't want to know how many times. Everybody thinks, oh, I've got something new, and they will never have heard this before. And, of course, uh, I always nod and say, yeah, that's a great one.
1: Yeah, a few (laughs) times. Yeah, I figured you'd heard it a couple times. Uh, Tomorrow at 1 o'clock, again, it's at the Hamilton Health Sciences Facebook page. Make a note of it. Uh, Dr. Barry Lum will be doing a live colonoscopy, if nothing else. If you are entirely squeamish by this, you can at least see how it works and decide whether or not this is something that you could not tolerate, but by the sounds of it, it is something you should be considering tolerating. Yeah, I
0: sure hope that's going to be the case.
1: Dr. Lum, really appreciate the time today. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Take
1: care, Scott. Uh, One more time. Dr. Barry Lum, Hamilton Health Sciences. If you've got a Facebook page, if you're on Facebook, it's 1 o'clock at Hamilton Health Sciences. You can find it there. We will take a quick break to let you regroup. If you are one of those squeamish people, you're listening to the Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine
0: on AM 900 CHML.
1: There beginning tomorrow night at Mohawk college, there is something being called a beer appreciation workshop guy who is behind this, who is a beer sommelier is Scott Boyle who joins me. Now, Scott, how are you this evening?
2: I'm doing very well, Scott. How are you, sir?
1: Excellent. Uh, i got to tell you, I'm a little confused by this, only because I thought at college every night was a beer appreciation workshop.
2: <laughs> I think that's called a beer binging workshop. Oh,
1: okay. All right. I, I, I knew there was a difference somewhere.
2: Yeah, if I recall my college days, that's what that was.
1: You are... Uh, now, are you officially a... What a beer sommelier, for lack of a better term, or is or is it a or are you a beer? How, what is your actual job description with this?
2: I am a certified beer sommelier through the Prudhomme Beer Certification, uh, which is a a certification program uh, through a gentleman called Roger Mittag, Thirst for Knowledge. Uh, he's been doing it for quite a few years. Um, so yeah, basically, what I am is a certified beer geek.
1: Okay, and how does how does one other than by drinking a lot of beer, how does one become such a thing?
2: Well, it, it's a series of courses you take. Um, the first level is you start off as an enthusiast, where you just go in for maybe a couple hours, learning the, the various tasting techniques, uh, the various styles, uh, some history on the beer. And as the program progresses, you get to the point where you're learning what the, the ta- how the taps are working. You're learning the basic entire craft. Uh, of the beer industry. Everything about it, the packaging, selling, everything you name it that's to do with the beer industry, you learn the Moyen program.
1: Well, and the reason I wanted to have you on tonight is because this has really become a thing in recent years. We, we, We are now seeing craft breweries and micro breweries and different beers and everything popping up to the point where everyone wants to try these different things. It seems that... A lot of people are no longer just satisfied to get the cheapest draft that they can get their hands on. Um, th- they want to experience something now. Wh- why is it changing?
2: I think a lot of people are just um, now. Again, it's you think a lot of people are changing, but apparently the craft market is only about eight percent of the entire beer industry. You know, so the, the big corporate fellows still own. You know, they still sell a lot of beers. Um, but my belief is that. The craft industry, because they're able to make smaller amounts, smaller batches in their beer, they can use different uh, um, ingredients Uh, other than just your typical same yeast, same hops, same barley, same barley malts. um, These guys are able to throw in, you know, hibiscus. They can throw it in a wine barrel. They can throw it in a bourbon barrel for six months and age it. So it's one of these things that, because of the craft, they're able to do anything kind of what they want to do to enhance the flavor, uh, brewing techniques, you know, just even the quality. Um, now, again, once again, nothing against the, the big corporate fellows, That a person who's going to drink, you know, Molson Canadian, it's going to really tough for them to switch to, a, you know, a, a tough bold IPA.
1: Especially if they've been drinking it for a long time, and that's their acquired taste.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: So, it, But it sounds like for those people who are interested in different microbreweries and that 8% that want to branch out, that beer is, for them anyway, less now just a, what are we going to say, a delivery system for a buzz, really, that they're, they're looking for something that is more upscale.
2: Surprisingly, it's, they're not even looking for a buzz anymore. They're looking for a good quality beer that they can sit and enjoy a meal, a good conversation with. Um, I, I see it in myself, you know, I remember the like I say the old binging days you know you sit down with a twelve pack and just give her now it's you have one and you're you're enjoying a meal with it or you for me, it's kind of hard because every time I try a new beer, so many things are going through my head um and it's kind of a you know one of those uh bad situations I want to enjoy it, but at the same time, everything's going through my head, trying to match flavor profiles with perhaps a tease or with a food with it. Um, Is it but,
1: becoming like wine in a lot of ways?
2: Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I find it, um, and I'll say it quite often, um, I work part-time in an LCBO, so I try to, when people come in and, you know, asking for a wine to pair with a lamb or something, I'll say, well, how about a beer? And, you know, you see their eyebrows going up a little bit and thinking, well, I don't like beer. So, you know, there's a lot of people that, um, You'll never have them switch from wine to beer, but I personally think the beer industry is just as competitive as the wine industry now in that same frame of mind of the beer pairing, beer and cheese, beer tastings, things like that.
1: Okay, Scott, but for you guys ever to be taken as seriously as wine in the tasting world and as an upscale beverage... You must be able to talk in the same pretentious tones with the same overwrought words and you know descriptions that wine people can. Are you uh, able to yeah, do? Are, are you able, able to do that with beer? Absolutely,
2: absolutely. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: you know, one one thing you'll see in a lot of um, perhaps when people are writing about beer, they'll always use words like the beer is very hoppy, or the beer is beer is very malty. You're always going to get a hoppy beer because beer is made with hops, so. What you want to try to do is describe the actual hop. You'll you'll get various so many flavors. You can get like a floral, herbal, grassy, citrus, spicy, piney. There's just so many flavors and aromas that you will get from a hop. And then that's then you go to the malt part of it. You know you'll get you know some biscuit flavors, um, nutty, molasses, chocolate, coffee. And and again you know when you think of wine you're getting berries, ashtray. I'm not too fussy on an ashtray.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if I'm drinking a beer that tastes like an ashtray, I think I've probably drinking the wrong beverage.
2: Well, that might be a smoked beer, that's why. Okay. That's called a rock beer. That's called a rock beer from Germany.
1: But have you always been able to taste this, or when people go to one of your courses, or when you were working on this, is it something that you learn to get the taste out of, as opposed to just saying, oh, that tastes something i mean is it have you been always able to separate those tastes and identify those tastes
2: not at all my first class i tasted beer exactly exactly yeah um, still to this day i say to my wife what does it taste like or smell like And she goes beer <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. what you tend to do is as you smell there'll be triggers that will actually go off in your mind that will take you back to your childhood um for instance there was there's some beers that, uh, that are made in Belgium that use treacle um, or like a molasses style. And when I remember smelling this, it took me back to my childhood, my mother using, you know, treacle in desserts and things. So there's these, you know, as you're smelling a beer, you'll, you'll get little pop in your head and you'll stay at the, on the end of your tongue. And at the end of your tongue, go, what is that? What is that? What is that? And then suddenly, boom, there it is
1: i'm glad you I'm glad you clarified that because when you said when you would smell the beer, you would go back to your childhood. I was getting a little concerned. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it, if you had two different beers, if someone was sitting there and they had two beers sitting in front of them and they were very different, clearly the I think everybody would be able to sip one and then sip the other and identify the difference. And maybe with those two in such close proximity, they could find a taste that was different. But I think for a lot of people, you're absolutely right. If you just had a beer and then the next day or something, we're given a different beer. It would be incredibly different to try and explain what it is that you're tasting.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, um, and like I said, the, the the word hoppy comes along so often, you know, and that's that's the big thing right now, in in my opinion, in the in the craft industry, uh, bold IPAs. Um, so how would I, if
1: you, if, if you were describing a beer as hoppy, now I know it means you taste the hops, but what would that mean? What would I, how would I know what was hoppy?
2: Hoppy, usually you will get a lot of bitterness on the finish. Um, you will find bold flavors, for instance, in an IPA where you get, um, there are lots of citrus. I'm, I'm talking, sorry, North American IPAs. Now we're, now we're just getting into different styles because an, an English IPA is completely different from a North American IPA uh, based on the hops mainly that they use. Now what happens is what what you will do is, for instance, kind of, I'm just rambling here. And I, that's what I tend to do when I talk about beer. I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> Go ahead.
2: So what will happen is, for instance, an IPA. Uh, you will... Tend to taste and smell, especially uh, citrus flavors. Um, pine, sometimes pine is like almost like a pine sap. Uh, usually, the the pit of an inside of a grapefruit. So
1: now, none know. of the, but none of these things are actually in the beer, right? These are just flavors that have been picked up. That no one, no one is actually putting pine sap as one of the ingredients.
2: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. These are all a lot of the the aromas that you get from like the pines and things that are from the actual hops themselves. There's two types of hops. What you'll we'll do is have a bittering hop that will go at the beginning when they're making the beer, and at the end, in the last couple of minutes, they'll throw in a whole bunch of hops for aroma. And that's sometimes when you crack some beers open and you have like a wide mouth, large glass, and boom, you will get a huge citrus like, uh, aroma in your mouth. In your And same with stouts like Guinness, for instance, as a stout. Um, A lot of stouts now are usually with a coffee and chocolate base. And as soon as you smell that, you will smell that espresso bean, um, a dark chocolate. And, And basically that is more of the malt coming through.
1: Scott, do most of the people who would show up and want to learn this, are they wanting to become capable of breaking down all the flavors or are they simply wanting to be able to Appreciate beer more? Are, do they want to become experts, or do they want to be able to taste something and say, "I can tell whether that's a an expensive, really good quality product beer or not"? What What are they looking for?
2: I believe that they're here. They're going to take the course just to learn to properly taste the beer. Um, a good friend of mine says, "Well, if it's good, you just drink another one. If it's bad, you don't." <laughs> <laughs> How difficult is that? But what I'm trying to do is teach the, the, the various difference on, how, you know, when you look at a beer, when, as soon as you open a beer, you listen. You listen to see if there's enough carbonation. If you don't hear that, you know, something's wrong with your beer. Uh, but, again, you could have a beer that doesn't have that carbonation because it's a certain style. So there's so many styles and ranges and, you know, that, I think people just kind of want to learn the basics, and this is what we want to try to do just teach the the general ingredients, how they work, the general history because beer has been around for so long. Um, the history of beer goes back unbelievable almost ten thousand b c um, you know so and then again, I think a lot of them is that they get to drink beer.
1: see, I was always told that a that a good beer was one that you could drink almost at room temperature because everyone says you want to drink it ice cold and I was always told no that just dulls your tongue that's to make the thing go down because it's not very good
2: again that comes to the styles and for instance we call them like crushers you know that's that beer that you want after a hockey game after a baseball game soccer game that all you want to do is just get it down you you don't nope. care what you're looking for right you just you're just a thirst quenching beer and you know what perfect good for you
1: is okay we just got a minute or two left here is Absolutely. is cheap beer always cheap because the ingredients in it are cheap is that why it's inexpensive
2: yes it is
1: okay is expensive beer always expensive because the ingredients are expensive no How do I know then if I'm buying a beer that has really good ingredients or if, because here's what happens to me. If I ever go and buy them and I want to buy, instead of buying a case or something, I'll buy one. I'll go into the store and I'll say, that looks interesting. I am the guy who, if you build the right label that sucks me in, I'm going to pay more because the label looks cool. How do I know if I'm actually buying something that's quality? Well,
2: in my opinion, every beer is quality. There's never a bad beer, there's only better beers.
1: Okay. How do I know if I'm going to spend extra for a beer th- than what I would, that I'm going to pay more, a premium, and it's not for a bigger bottle, for the same size, how do I know that that's a good investment?
2: Well, it, it's it's kind of hard, if you can backtrack for one second, is when you said that cheap ingredients, all I usually do for those first quenching one is they add corn, which cuts the it cuts the cost down. Okay, It's still a good quality beer, it's just... They add corn to it, therefore it's cutting the, the cost down to increase profits. So every beer out there, you're not gonna go wrong buying, you know, some some appeal to some people, some appeal to another people. You can go out and buy an, a fifteen point nine percent alcohol beer and people will love it. Other people will hate it.
1: Do you so, ever do you ever crack open a beer and taste it and go, That is so bad I can't finish that. Have you ever had that happen?
2: Absolutely. absolutely. Really? Absolutely, yep. Absolutely.
1: And is that usually a really cheap one, or is that more often a very expensive one that someone has tried to tinker around with something clever and it didn't work out?
2: Actually, in both, both, both cases. I've had beers that, uh, like, low, low alcohol, um,
1: you
2: know, 10 bucks for a six pack, and they're awful. And I've also had a beer that $15.95 for one, and it was awful.
1: How often does someone walk up to you with one they've made at home in their swill at home, and they say, hey, try this, it's great?
2: Um, (laughs) Quite a few times.
1: And how often is it really great?
2: Not too often. Not too
1: often. Yeah, you know, there's something in people's minds, whether it's wine or beer, if you make it at home, it tastes good to you, but oh, heaven forbid that you're one of the people who gets one of their gift six packs because as soon as they leave the house
2: <laughs> you can always use them use it for marinade <laughs> uh
1: okay your uh, your program your course at mohawk starts tomorrow uh are actually there spots yes Yeah,
2: that was one thing it was actually supposed to start tonight but due to the snowstorm it was canceled okay so if we actually have another course in two weeks from tonight okay on the uh the 28th
1: and how would people sign up if they were interested
2: Go to the Mohawk College Continuing Education um, website and look for the Appreciation uh, Program. Click on it and uh, register. Way to go! I believe it's going to be up to eighteen people because you don't want too many people when you're doing tasting.
1: Scott Boyle, uh, beer sommelier, who will be again teaching a course at Mohawk uh, College uh, an evening. It's an evening course, right? workshop. There you go. If you're interested in doing that, uh, he just told you how to find it. Scott, I really appreciate the time tonight. Thanks for doing this.
2: Thank you for having me on, Scott.
1: It's a, um, it is interesting to me. It really is interesting to me how beer has become the new wine because for, it's well, maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just noticing this, but it seemed like for the longest time it was beer was just beer. People wanted a beer. They didn't, as I said uh, uh, an hour or so ago, people didn't really, a lot of the time, a lot of the time, they didn't even care. You go somewhere and someone says, Want a beer? Yeah, I want a beer. And you, no one would say, uh, What kind of beer do you have? Do you have something in a German or a Belgian import? No, they would just say, Give me a beer. Is it cold? Good, it's gold. Now you have a lot of people who are trying to get more into this. They're trying to be more specific and trying to learn more about it. And you know what? It just dawned on me that it was just. Luke, how long ago was it? Two weeks ago, we had the guy on—I can't remember his name now—and I apologize for that. Who was the coffee? Who had had the coffee festival? And it's the same kind. It's the same idea behind it that people now, if you're going to spend money on something, it strikes me that a lot of people are now saying, "Look, if I'm going to spend X dollars on something, I'd rather spend a little bit more." And have an experience with it. If I'm going to spend $2 on a coffee in a run-of-the-mill place, I'd rather spend $3 and get something that is unique or has a story behind it or is fair trade or whatever else. If I am going to buy a beer, if it's going to be $2 for a beer... At the store, I would rather pay three and get something that's really different, that's really unique, that's something that I can talk about, there's something I can try and taste. It's a, It seems to me that we are, very often now, we're looking for experiences, no matter what it is that we're drinking or eating or doing. We want experiences, and that is how this is being played out, that beer is now the new wine. I don't know if... That means that you can explain away your beer belly better because now I'm a connoisseur. Can you, can you have a beer belly and say, yeah, but it's because I'm an expert. I'm not sure. And I didn't ask Scott if he has one. I don't know. (laughs) He's probably going to call me back now and tell me either way. There you go. Uh, Mohawk continuing education. If you are interested in taking that program in two weeks, Scott Boyle is his name. The Scott Radley show weeknights from seven to nine on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.